Hello and welcome to the TID Water and Power Podcast. I'm your host, Constance Anderson, and on this month's episode, we're discussing TID's history and the early years of the district. Officially formed on June 6, 1887, TID became the first irrigation district in California and began its mission of serving our community, now for 135 years. As we celebrate 135 years of serving the Central Valley of California, we thought, what better topic for the podcast than a deep dive into that rich history of how the district was formed and what the early years were like for Turlock Irrigation District and its customers. Our previous podcast guests have been subject matter experts from within TID. However, to tackle the in-depth discussion of TID history, we have reached outside the district and brought in the foremost expert on TID history. He quite literally wrote the book. On this episode, I'm joined by author and historian Dr. Alan Patterson to discuss life within the region prior to TID, how the district became the first irrigation district in the state, and how the region changed in those early years after TID's formation. Dr. Patterson, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Wonderful. If you would, um, start with a little bit about, about your background. Well, I was, I was raised um, in the Houston area family farming. So I got some early experience with irrigation, you know, actually working, you know, on the farm. Uh, But I was also interested in history. So I wound up with a uh, PhD in history from UC Davis. uh, And I wrote about water while I was there and then became a uh, historical consultant. So when uh, the TID was looking for someone to write their centennial history, I think I checked all the boxes. I knew, I knew the region, I knew irrigation, and I you know, was also a qualified historian. So that's how that happened. Wonderful. And that, that book, that history that you mentioned, is Land, Water, and Power, A History of the Turlock Irrigation District. And we, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that as, as we get into the podcast. So let's start before the formation of the district. What was life like in the area before TID? Well, this was basically just uh, open grassland. Uh, The only real forests were near the rivers. So the first settlers just moved through. Basically, the gold rush brought people through the area, not as much to the area. And later, some some people settled along the riverbanks. Uh, whether with trees and water, but the the plains were just used for grazing cattle, which were more or less wild, um, and and that was about all it was. Dry in the summer, you know, some moisture in the winter. Uh, that then that was a very flat and dull area compared to the to the mining camps. Sure, and it's interesting that you point out that the settlers who did come here were nearer to the river. For uh, access the, to water. All the resources. Right, absolutely. And that was, a, they were transportation arteries as well toward the gold country. Sure. So when did the area make the shift to farming? Beginning in around 1867 or so, uh, people began farming wheat in the area. Wheat was really California's first agricultural bonanza crop. Uh, and these were dry farmed uh, wheat on, on large farms. These were farms of uh, hundreds of acres, oftentimes thousands of acres. I mean, it's easy to overestimate how big some of them were, but they were large operations. And they were unusual in those days because they were not 
subsistence farms. They were not multi-crop farms. They just grew wheat. It was a cash market crop. Uh, it was sold into the world trade, primarily to, uh, to England, where it was transferred wherever it needed to be uh, sold. So the, it, was, it was really a big business. And it was, a diff, I say, a different kind of farming. Uh, after the first rains in the fall had softened the soil, they would plow and plant the seed. And these were not little plows with one person walking behind them. They were called gang plows, where you had shallow plowing, but you know several furrows at once, and sometimes squadrons of these uh, gang plows out across the land to quickly turn the soil and, and plant the seed. And then you just waited. You waited for the rains to mature it. And the next uh, spring, maybe around June, the, it dried out. It was ready for harvesting. And then again, the harvest was industrial scale, very fast. Uh, the sacks of grain were then hauled. Originally, they were hauled on uh, to the rivers, put on boats and barges, headed for the Bay Area and, and uh, the export. Later, the railroad arrived. Railroad came through this area, the Sherlock area, in 1871, which is the year that Sherlock was founded on John Mitchell's land. And, and then it was, of course, shipped by, by rail. But that was what, what it looked like. It was essentially one vast wheat field wow. with scattered houses, not very many houses, because remember, this was not an intensively farmed crop. It was very extensively farmed. All right. And, and again, as you said, completely dependent on the seasonality. If the rains fell, the rains fell. Yes, there was nothing that the farmers could do but wait. That's right. So then I imagine there were downsides to this process of, of farming being so closely tied to the weather patterns. It was tied to the weather patterns. It was also really an extractive process. I mean, without irrigation, nothing much could grow except dry farm grain. I mean, that's really about all you could grow. But that is an extractive kind of agriculture. You're mining the soil. Uh, things come in, they don't go back. Things come out, they don't go back in. So I think that that was an issue. Certainly the, the season, say the, the problems of rainfall, you know, if you didn't get enough, you didn't get the crop or you didn't get as big a crop. Yeah, that was, that was the, the issue. So, I mean, of course, would it be better if it was irrigated? I'm sure that some people thought of it. Probably came up every time there was a dry spell. Sure, that makes sense. So, given that there may have been these off discussions about irrigation, like you said, when during some of these dry spells, what attempts were made to make irrigation happen in our region? Well, actually, interestingly enough, it wasn't hardly after people moved onto the plains and started farming wheat, that there was a, a significant drought mm. <clears throat> that uh, ran in 1870, 1871. And in 1871, an outfit called the Tuolumne Water Company set up shop and offered to sell the farmers water. They had acquired some water rights at LaGrange uh, and proposed to build canals on either side of the river. And they wanted to sell the water on long-term contracts and emphasis on long-term because you needed to have some guarantee for people to fund this that they're going to get income. One of the great worries, of course, when you're doing that is that the farmers will buy water when it's dry. And then when they get a nice rain, they say, oh, well, don't need it anymore. 
Sure. And, you know, and you've still got to have money coming in. So the farmers didn't want the, uh, the long-term contracts. They didn't like what they were being offered. And in December 1871, it rained. So, you know, you, problem you solved. Know, problem solved, exactly. <laughs> but the water company uh, did build a dam at LaGrange. Uh, up, we say at LaGrange, it's actually just upstream from LaGrange, where there's a natural dam site where the bluffs come very close to, the, uh, to one another and, and the, the river kind of exits a, a canyon right there, and, and sometimes called the falls or rapids. And they built a 30 foot high timber dam at that site as sort of a, well, I guess they, to prove they actually meant it, but at the time it didn't have anything to do. Water just poured over it. Okay. After the, after the building of the dam, and I'm sorry, who was it that, it was the Tuolumne Water Company? The Tuolumne Water Company constructed okay. it. Um, there were several partners in the Tuolumne Water Company. One of those partners, uh, M.A. Wheaton, eventually bought out the others, and it became Wheaton's company. Okay. And that's why it was referred to as Wheaton's Dam. I've, I have heard that, that name before, yes. Okay. And so were there other attempts besides what originated with the Tuolumne Water Company and then eventually became Wheaton's Dam? Well, Wheaton tried repeatedly to unload. Now, that seems a harsh term, to sell to the farmers uh, some water or even his property, just to sell the property. He offered at one point, if they would organize a company to use it, he would sell it to them for what it cost him. Yeah. Uh, at that point, he was probably fairly desperate to, to do something with it. And there were other schemes brought up at times that never went anywhere. Irrigation on the Tuolumne is going to be expensive. There are rivers further down the San Joaquin Valley, say in, in uh, the Kings River or something like that, that actually come out of the mountains on, it's called an alluvial fan. They're, they're not cut deeply into the ground. It's fairly easy to divert them by putting in low brush dams or small sandbag dams even. You can run water into a canal. The Tuolumne, however, after it leaves that canyon at LaGrange, runs between bluffs across the valley floor. So it's considerably below the level of the land that you'd be trying to irrigate. So I you see. have to divert it far enough up the hill, like at LaGrange, to get it to flow by gravity down to the irrigable plains. So it was going to be more costly. There was no simple solution out there. And so the engineering is not that difficult, but the institutional problem is a big one. So you have the problem of how are you going to pay for it? You could have private, you could have uh, public of various kinds. Some of these were proposed, dropped, they never had proper financing behind them. So it was that institutional issue. Where Wheaton was concerned, he was trying to just sell water. And it's very difficult to sell water disconnected from the land. A lot of the value of irrigation comes in the increased value of the land that is being irrigated. And Wheaton couldn't capitalize on that because everybody already bought the land. They were already farming it. So he was just trying to sell water. That's, that worked very much against him. Okay. So when did things change then? When, when did the tide turn on bringing irrigation to the area? Well, in 1885, 
a group of farmers south of the Tuolumne in the Turlock area, paid for a new engineering surveys. These surveys covered the Merced River and the Tuolumne. It was possible to dam the Merced and run water into the Turlock Irrigation District, what it is today. But it'd come in at lower elevation, so it wouldn't irrigate as much land. Okay. It's a smaller property. Not as good an idea, really. Um, and there, it was one of those things that while there was enthusiasm for the canal survey, they had trouble raising enough money to pay the surveyor. So the next year, they tried again. They did some more surveys. And, and this time, they hired uh, an engineer from the Fresno area. Fresno had already begun irrigating in the 1870s. So there more experience down there. And George Manuel came and did, again, some of the similar surveys. And he surveyed a general route uh, from LaGrange down to the plains. Uh, gave an estimate in, of cost, which was way lowball. Uh, it was it was far too optimistic, <laughs> <laughs> but it, you know it it did enthuse things. Now at the same time, also about about that same time, around 1886 or thereabouts, you start getting a different kind of of push for irrigation across the region. Before it was really a question of the farmers need water. We, you know, the farmers will benefit if they can get the water. But this was a different kind of uh, irrigation dream, irrigation crusade, whatever you want to call it. It was the idea that irrigation is a community benefit, not just a benefit to the farmers. <clears throat> that irrigation would mean, as it had in some other areas, it would mean smaller farms, more intensively farmed, be different crops, more valuable perhaps than what the wheat had been. Uh, more people, more population, more, more sales to the merchants, uh, more chance to develop other industries. So it was everything together, a community development plan, if you will. It was not just an antidote to drought, but it was a whole new regional prosperity that they were selling. So that was a community benefit. And you would, and that kind of leads toward the idea of a community organization to provide that benefit. That makes sense. So how did, if they did, the community support this public project? Well, it seems like they got very enthused, I, you know, very quickly on that. Um, the election of 1886, uh, young uh, Modesto attorney by the name of C.C. Wright was elected uh, to the assembly on a platform of irrigation, proposed legislation to promote irrigation. Uh, <laughs> he easily won his election. His statements at the time were a little bit vague as to what he was going to do, but it quickly became obvious that what he had in mind, and he explained this later, was to create something along the lines of a county government, uh, a government organization encompassing the entire community that would have the ability to finance and operate an irrigation system, a single-purpose governmental entity. So he got right to work in Sacramento in early 1887, drafted his bill. It absolutely sailed through the legislature. He got unanimous votes, in some case, in the assembly, which is <laughs> really strange. And irrigation 
water in general had always been a contentious issue in California. Sure. It always is a contentious Absolutely. issue in California. And, and it just sailed through. It was perfect. Um, the governor signed it. Excitement reigned. Cannons boomed in Modesto. Huge, big deal. Uh, we have the right act. So it allowed for, for farmers or landowners to petition the, the county board of supervisors to form an irrigation district according to the various you know, terms of the right act. And the petitions were very quickly circulated in the Turlock area. Uh, they got the requisite signatures, went to the board of supervisors, which held hearings and, and went over the possibilities and called an election. And that election then was, uh, occurred on May 28th, 1887. And I think, again, it's important. It's, it's a public vote. Mm -hmm. It's not just landowners mm. voting. It's everybody voting. You know, I mean, everybody. There was not very many people in the area at the time, sure. but the population voted on it, and it passed uh, 291 to 73. Now, it needed a, a good-sized margin to win. It needed two-thirds, and it got more than that. Uh, so it did well. So the district was formally organized, as you mentioned earlier, on June the 6th, 1887, uh, the first district organized under the Wright Act. Okay. And, and truly, kind of that March to June time frame, that's, that's a relatively quick time span for all of this to, to take place. Uh, how were the people able to move so quickly on the formation of the district? Well, they had just done the canal surveys oh, in the Sherlock okay. area. So there was already a kind of foreknowledge of what it was going to take. So these 1885-1886 canal surveys provided some of the impetus for that. And, and by that time, you've also got the people who did the surveys, the farmers who paid for them, were organized enough to at least do that and to consider organizational forms to make it come true. So I think everyone was ready to go when the right act was passed, and they went. They went. They ran with yes. it. Yes. Okay. So you mentioned that um, you know there was certainly a an issue with the the having the money available to build such a costly infrastructure. Um, how how was it that we came to actually build the irrigation system that's still in use today? On the money issue, the right act provided for the pet for issuing bonds. Uh, the government bonds that would pay for the irrigation system. And, and that was seen as a good financing mechanism. The difficulty, of course, is this is a brand new kind of, of district, something, something novel. And so there was a question of how easy it would be to sell the bonds. Would people trust them? People trust that they would be repaid. There was a lot on the line. So the Turlock Irrigation District, being the first one out there, uh, they did something very clever. They set up a legal challenge to their own bonds just to test the law. Interesting. And the way that worked was that they, they, voted, they voted to approve. They got approval of the bonds, which they had to do. Uh, the board of directors uh, uh, ordered the bonds to be sold. The secretary to the board refused to sign the order. So the district sued its own secretary in order to validate the bonds. 
to order him to do it. So all the questions, any doubts about the validity of the bonds, about the legality of the district, everything was therefore on the table and, and went before the courts. And it actually went directly to the California Supreme Court, which then ruled the right act was constitutional, the bonds were valid. So that was, that was how the Trillock Irrigation District kind of got ahead of the problem or tried to get ahead of the problem. Sure. Now, even though they had the court, the, the California Supreme Court's approval for everything in the right act, the formation of the district and the issuance of its bonds, the bonds were still hard to sell. I mean, these are still enterprises that haven't proven that they're going to succeed. So it was very, very difficult uh, to market the bonds. But they did manage to get scrape together some cash, some at least some buyers of some bonds. So they're able to begin construction of the canal from around the LaGrange area down through the foothills, the difficult part okay. uh, of the canal began in the spring of 1890. So in addition to getting started on these canals to deliver the water from the Tuolumne, what else did the district need to have in place? You needed a dam. Uh-huh. You have to be able to divert the water into the canals. Uh, and, and here we go back to Wheaton and uh, the Wheaton Dam in that nice little natural dam site, that, that close narrow canyon above LaGrange, that was the perfect spot. Unfortunately, Wheaton was difficult to deal with. He wanted a lot of money. At one time in the 1870s, he had promised to sell his dam for not more than I paid for it. Well, now that the irrigation districts have been organized and had bonds, Wheaton decided his dam was worth a whole lot more and his property and his water rights. His water rights were really not worth very much because he'd never done anything with them. But still, Wheaton wanted a lot of money and TID did negotiate with him. It was very difficult and they could not reach an agreement. They solved the problem by purchasing 160 acres just upstream from the Wheaton Dam which also had a dam site. Maybe not as great a dam site as the Wheaton's dam site, but it would work. And therefore, all the district needed from Wheaton was a right-of-way for its canal to cross his property, which, as I say, is the canyon wall, basically. <laughs> to get through there uh, was all that the TID would need. And they filed condemnation suits in Stanislaus and Tuolumne counties because the Wheaton Dam is kind of right on the, on the county line. Uh, to condemn, and in both cases, uh, fairly reasonable sums. The Stanislaus County, more attuned to irrigation, paid, granted Wheaton almost nothing for the land that was, it was almost vertical. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> Tuolumne County was less uh, enthused with irrigation, but still only gave Wheaton a small portion of what he thought that canal right-of-way was worth. So TID could move forward on its own. Meanwhile, Wheaton did a deal whereby he sold his dam and certain water rights to the Modesto Irrigation District, which had been organized only one month after TID in 1887. Uh, and, and so Modesto could build a dam there. And that's where, where things stood going into the summer of 1890. The two districts, however, started negotiating between themselves. And in August of 1890, they reached an agreement to buy out all of Wheaton's property 
to combine their, their properties and to build a joint dam to serve both sides of the Tuolumne River. And it's just, it's really hard to overestimate how important that 1890 agreement was between Turlock and Modesto. Uh, everything that has come since in the development of the Tuolumne River began with the 1890 agreement. They agreed to share the land, agreed to share the costs of the dam and its maintenance, and they agreed to share the water that would reach the dam in accordance to the acreage in each of the two districts. Now, since TID had more land and it covered a bigger area than Modesto, that meant TID would get a larger share of the water in proportion to its acreage and, and it's a general proportion to its, its needs. And there was another clause that also divided any future development of the Tuolumne, gave each side the option to participate in that, which has been exercised as, as we've seen in the Don Pedro things. So it was a good deal for TID. Wheaton was out of the way. They were gonna have a joint dam with Modesto. Uh, that part of the future was secured. It was an excellent deal actually for both districts. Great. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, that partnership is really the foundation of, as you mentioned, everything that's that's gone forward from that. Yes, it is. Very good. Okay, so going back to Lagrange Dam, then, what what can you tell us about Lagrange Dam? Well, the dam itself is is constructed of what is called rubble masonry, which is really means the core is just big irregular boulders held together with uh, with concrete cement. In there, so you cement this core, and then the outsides are faced with rough-cut stones, so that makes it look neater. But the inside are these uh, these giant boulders held together with with uh, concrete. So it's it's really a solid structure. Now, all of the rock and gravel were were quarried on the site, so you didn't have to bring all that stuff in. I mean, after all, it is a rocky canyon. Sure. Uh, and so they had uh, all of that uh, kind of thing. The contractor was responsible for doing all that work. The district supplied the cement. And because it is a narrow place, the, the cement warehouse was on the top of the bluff uh, above. And the barrels of cement were hauled in from, you know, wagon loads from the railroad at Waterford. So basically most stuff on site the, one of the difficulties, of course, is working in a narrow canyon is the river is running through it. So most of the foundation work, all the foundation work, in fact, had to be done in the low water season, beginning in 1891, uh, where you clean out everything down to bedrock and then start building the dam from that solid base. There were some small, there were first, there were flumes that ran through to carry water at the very earliest stages. Then they left some some ports in it that would be closed later to carry the water at low elevations. And they generally kept one side of the construction project lower than the other. So if the river rose, it would only flow over part of the work and they could continue uh, working. So, I mean, there were things slowed them down. Sometimes the river went over the whole thing, you know, in the winters and work had to cease until uh, the summer season. You know, the cement warehouse up on the top of the hill burned. Oh my. And a, with a complete loss of, of virtually everything there, the cement had to be replaced, which was not a, a cheap item. And remember, the districts really haven't got any money here. They're trying right. to sell bonds that aren't worth hardly anything. 
but they still they managed to get through and got the uh, got the cement got the thing built. So it's important, you know, to finish. It, it finished in uh, in December of eighteen ninety three. Uh, water went over the top of the finished dam at that time. Now, it's, the dam does not store water. People think of a dam as a storage dam, but this is not what it did. It's a diversion dam. The only point of Lagrange is to raise the the elevation high enough so it goes into the canals at, an, at a an elevation that will flow by gravity down to both the Turlock and Modesto districts. So it's 127 feet high been added to slightly over the years with concrete caps, but basically it's the same same dam. Now, it had no spillways. Uh, anything that didn't go through the outlet gates to the canal simply flowed over the top of the dam, like a giant waterfall. Mm-hmm. And the dam is shaped and designed for the water to flow over it, so it's safely, it's not eroding its own foundation. At the time it was built, it was the tallest overflow dam in the country, and maybe in the world, uh, and still in service today, all these years later. All these years a very, later. A very well-constructed. Absolutely, dam. absolutely. I, I think that's truly one of the most remarkable uh, facilities or, or pieces of infrastructure in the district because, again, built in or completed in 1893, still serving the exact same purpose for which it was intended. That's, that's pretty amazing. So after the formation of Turlock Irrigation District, did everybody in the region kind of get on board with this irrigation idea? Oh, no. There's always some people that don't like things. There, were op- there was opposition at the time the district was formed. It just wasn't enough to stop the formation of the district. There were people who objected to the cost. I mean, you know, it, there's going to be taxes to pay with irrigation. Your land's going to be taxed. Uh, all land in the district is going to be taxed, now, whether irrigated or not, whether whether it was even a farm or not, all land was going to be taxed. People sometimes disliked that idea. Strangely enough, they didn't want to pay money. Some of them probably just liked the way things were. There were undoubtedly people who looked out across their thousands of acres of wheat and said, I like this. I don't need more people around me. I don't know what all the various reasons were, but there were always some kickers. But generally, the it's like voting for the bonds. They passed easily. Uh, there was not a problem of getting, you know, getting people to vote for that. Uh, but, you know, there was always a, a few people that were, that objected. Things got more serious, though, uh, in 1893, same time we're finishing LaGrange Dam, there was a, a national depression began. Financial panic of 1893 was an especially serious downturn. I mean, there it was bad times everywhere. And it really hit the Turlock district hard because the wheat ground was playing out. Like I said before, it was an extractive form of agriculture. Year after year after year of the same crop, mining the soil. It soon got to be, you couldn't grow a crop every year. Maybe you had to fallow it occasionally. Uh, the wheat market was not what it had been. Wheat was being grown in other parts of the world that were just as competitive or better than California. So the local farmers, they grew wheat yet, but they also started growing feed grains, lower value crops. So you have a depression. The area itself is running on hard times. People 
were moving away. The Turlock Irrigation District, this whole area, was losing population. I mean, there weren't very many people to begin with, but they were losing what some of what there were. Um, there were fires in the city of Turlock, burned some of the buildings, which weren't even rebuilt in the 1890s. There was, it was a bad time, a hard time everywhere. And that meant that people also didn't or couldn't pay their irrigation taxes. The anti-irrigationists, that's what they were referred to, the anti-irrigationists. Okay. Which I guess made the other guys the irrigationists. Um, they began filing what were called injunction suits, uh, legal actions to stop the, the collection of the district's taxes. And these became an annual event. And at first, it was just the anti-irrigationists doing them. As times went on and times became harder and harder, even some of the district's loyalist supporters, people who held office in the district even, joined the injunction suits because they could not afford to pay their taxes. And if you failed to pay the taxes, your land could be seized and, and sold. So to protect everything, people were joining these, even if they agreed with the proposition of the district. So it was, it was very difficult. Um, bonds, which were difficult to sell anyhow, were even harder to sell in this kind of depression era. Uh, some, they were supposed to be sold legally at 90% of face value. If they could get half of value, you're doing good. So there had to be dummy purchasers. Bonds were traded for work, uh, things like that. Uh, I think probably the most interesting is that at one point, the district, destitute of cash, uh, was presented a bill for the printing of the bonds and offered to pay the bill by giving the printer a bond in exchange, and, and they could take their change in cash. Wow. I don't know if the printer did it or not, but, <laughs> but that's how bad things were. That's pretty bad. Yeah. That's it's, pretty you, bad. Try to trade a bond to get the bonds when, when they say not worth the paper it's printed on. It was worth something, but it was not, it was difficult to sell. So the, the district was in, in bad shape. So how did the district get out of this mess? Luck. Had a lot to do with it, I think. And luck uh, came in the person of James Waymeyer. Waymeyer was a former judge. Uh, he was often referred to Judge Waymeyer. Uh, he was from Oakland. He was an early investor in irrigation district bonds. Not just in the Turlock district. He was interested in that in TID, but in other districts as well. So he was he stood to gain much if the districts districts many plurals mm. succeeded, and and could lose if they didn't. He was so confident in Turlock that he negotiated with the board of directors to take over the canal construction contract. Construction had begun again on the canal following the completion of LaGrange Dam and immediately stopped because there was no money. The workers were not paid. They walked off. The, the company had to abandon the project. Waymire offered to take over that contract on a negotiated terms with the district to find buyers for the bonds to finish the canal system. Okay. So it was gambling. This was a huge gamble on Waymire's part because if he succeeded, if the district did well, the value of the bonds would increase and he would make money. If the value of the bonds went down or the district failed, 
he would lose his investment. So it's a big gamble. Absolutely. And he saw something in it that, <laughs> that he thought he could do well at. He's a very confident man. Now, just as he got his crews back to work, he got scraped together some money, another problem came up. Now, remember, we solved the California legal issues of legality with the Right Act by TID's actions at the beginning. Mm -hmm. But now the anti-irrigation is not just in the Turlock or Modesto area, but across the state where there were Right Act districts, tried to find federal issues. And indeed, a judge in San Diego County, federal judge, ruled the Right Act unconstitutional on federal grounds, and it went to the Supreme Court. Wow. So when that happens, everything stopped. Bonds could not be sold. Work on the canal ceased. Essentially, everyone held their breath to see what this, the United States Supreme Court would do. Now, Waymire, again, very well connected, was put in charge of the case to defend the Right Act bonds on, by the bondholders, by the people like himself who had purchased these bonds. He became sort of their, their manager for this court case. And the question was arguing the case. He had in mind a particularly appealing lawyer of national renown to argue for the Right Act. Unfortunately, that lawyer had already been taken by the opposition. Oh. This was not good news. No. <laughs> <laughs> However, I said, Waymire was well-connected. One of those connections was with former President Benjamin Harrison, who was also a lawyer. And Waymire got Harrison to represent the Right Act districts and the Right Act bondholders before the Supreme Court. This was very fortuitous. And as Waymire himself remembered, you know, he was the equal of any man as an attorney. He was certainly interesting to listen to, and it didn't hurt that he appointed three of the members of the court. That, that, wow. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it was argued in, uh, before the Supreme Court, uh, and the Right Act was found constitutional. You know, there had been victory celebrations when TID's case in the early, in the 1880s had been settled. There was almost nothing like that when this was settled. Everyone was just so shell-shocked by the whole set of problems that were besetting the districts that it was a victory and they got back to work. Back to work. And that, then they got back to work on the canal. And the canal was completed through to Hickman at the end of 1898. That is to say that water was flowing through the whole thing, a little water to test it. Okay. And spilling out across the open ground uh, somewhere near Hickman. And that got, that got the construction down to the valley floor, where it's certainly easier than dealing with the foothills. Absolutely. Where you've got all kind, you know, you've got gullies and cuts and snaking around things. So in 1889 and 1900, the local farmers were able to join the construction crews uh, using their scrapers, their horses and teams, along with the uh, contractor's equipment to dig the canals and laterals that ran out through the district. Now, Waymare ran out of money during this last push 
uh, it was always difficult for him to get money. I mean, he was scraping together dollars here and there. Um, there's there are many stories told about how he did it and probably didn't scratch the surface of the difficulties that he had in turning these bonds, which were difficult to sell even after everybody said they were legal, uh, into cash to pay the construction crews. So he ran out of money. He'd already mortgaged his house in Oakland. Uh, years later, after the turn of the century, he was evicted from that house. Oh my. Put out on the street. Yeah. The gamble succeeded for the district. TID got its canals. Waymire became a casualty. Wow. And, and truly, the district wouldn't be what it is today without his sacrifice. Certainly, it, it wouldn't have been done as quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. His persistence speeded it up materially. Interesting. Okay. So, as you mentioned, we've, we've got water that's sort of trickling in now to the, the valley floor. When did irrigation actually begin? Well, the first known irrigation, March 16, 1900, when a guy named Henry Stirring became the first farmer to irrigate. He put the, uh, put the water on a parcel of corn. This was irrigated out of a lateral that runs along what is now Hatch Road. Okay. <clears throat> and uh, people came out to see this amazing sight of irrigation. There's water. It's in the canal. It's, it's, it's running. Now, the canal system was still being completed in 1900, so irrigation was sort of, well, whenever it was there, people could take it if they had their land ready. Okay. So there wasn't a lot of land that was ready. Nobody knows how much was actually irrigated. I don't know if Stirring got a second irrigation on his farm. Who knows? Uh, the big deal was it had started, and it was available as the laterals across the district were finished and people could get their land leveled up enough to to irrigate. So the first real irrigation season was in 1901. Okay. So the water is here. What happens next? Well, now then in the imagination of all the people who had promoted irrigation beginning in the, that irrigation crusade in the 1880s that got Wright elected uh, to the assembly, you'd have small farms and you'd have many diverse crops. Um, well, it didn't happen automatically, and it didn't happen overnight, but it did start happening. Okay. So the question, one question you'd have is, well, why wouldn't the big farmers just go ahead and irrigate big farms? Now, it wasn't going to be that easy. It takes money to, to irrigate. You have to get the land leveled enough. You have to dig your ditches. You have to, actually, there's labor to irrigate. So there were many cases where large farms were irrigated in California in the 19th century, early 20th century. Certainly that, that was not an impediment, but these are broke farmers. We have worn out grain land. They don't have any money. The best thing they can do is take advantage of the increased value of their land and sell it. And so they did begin selling it. Uh, you have almost immediately, you have ads appearing for land in the Turlock Irrigation District uh, from some of these farmers. Um, the Whitmore family, C.N. Whitmore, was an active supporter of irrigation, founder of Ceres, and was selling his land and advertising it. Okay. And there were, there were others. And, of course, when you're advertising, you're advertising 
what will be, not what is. Like I said, these were old wheat fields. They, they didn't look like much. Wasn't much there. So potential buyers were, were shown pictures of irrigated areas elsewhere in the San Joaquin Valley, maybe in Southern California, uh, had become prosperous. It said, this is your future. Yeah. And you use that to, to sell the land. The Modesto Irrigation District finished its canals at the end of 1903 and so began to irrigate in 1904. And in the spring of 1904, they held a huge irrigation jubilee, a big multi-day party in Modesto that brought people from all over the state. There were speeches and goings-on, and there was a working model of LaGrange Dam, and there was all kinds of things. And there were especially excursion trains were run so that people could tour, they could go down past the Tuolumne and take a look at the Turlock District as well. So between the promotion from the the real estate developers, uh, the landowners, the irrigation jubilee, you've got this this big push to sell land. So that was that was the the beginnings. That's a heck of a marketing plan. It is a marketing plan. Small farms, you know, were going to were beginning to be developed in the Turlock area. These are sometimes as small as 20 acres, 40 acres was common. Mm-hmm. And everything else around, some smaller, some larger, depending on the particular track that was being subdivided. And this didn't happen right away. It takes time to bring people in to develop the ditches and so forth. So you had some were developed as colonies. Uh, For example, the Hillmar colony was one of the first. It was developed on some of the Mitchell land to the uh, south and west of Turlock, became the town of Hillmar. And they advertised and brought in people, many of them from the Midwest. Many were farmers there who were, became irrigation farmers. Again, they probably had lost some of their land or became tenants in that Great Depression that began in 1893. Here's a chance to get in on the ground floor, really on the ground floor of irrigated right, agriculture right. in the Turlock area. And there were others like that. And so you had town promoters, um, you know, Denaire was one, was a promotion. Hewson, Hiram Hewson was an anti-irrigationist. He fought irrigation every step of the way and then sold his land, I'm sure, for a hefty markup to the Hewson Town Company to develop the town of Hewson and sell the surrounding farmland. Interesting. And that, and so you get, you know, so you get new towns, you get all kinds of new business, you get small farms, this is exactly what was promised in the 1880s. That whole community atmosphere. The community atmosphere and development. And these were, these were people who overcame their obstacles. And there were obstacles. I mean, this was, let me say, this is new ground. Uh, in the spring, the winds blow in the spring in this area, and they blew dust. You cultivate the fields for the first time, and there's a lot of dust. Sure. So dust storms became a serious issue. And some of the real estate people were very concerned that their, their prospective buyers would come and couldn't see anything for the dust storm. This happened to one, one of the real estate uh, agents who was relieved to find that his, the person who was looking was familiar with the valley and knew this was not a big problem. Uh, rabbits 
ate some of the crops. They were locusts. Rabbits were a little hard to get rid of than the locusts. The locusts eventually kind of went away on their own, but uh, there were pioneering was still a little tough to get going and and turn this into the paradise that people had been sold. Sure. So irrigation quickly transformed the Turlock region as these farms were developed. Um, in 1900, when the canals were being finished and Henry Stirring became that first irrigator, there were just over 300 taxpayers in the, in the assessment role of the Turlock Irrigation District, property owners that were taxed. Ten years later, there were 2,000, and the numbers kept accelerating. The development took a couple of decades. Okay, so now we have these, uh, a lot of these uh, parcels are much smaller. Um, and of course, with the addition of irrigation water, that opens up new opportunity. What crops did the early farmers plant? In the first couple of years, the answer was alfalfa. Almost universally, it was alfalfa. Uh, it was a, a great pioneer crop. It could be seeded relatively inexpensively. It was semi-permanent. Uh, it took well to, ir it required irrigation did very well in the area, and it supported what was becoming an important dairying area. The dairy industry in Northern California was moving from the coast into the valley during those exact years and the early part of the 20th century. So you had creameries developing. Farmers sold the cream to, you know, for uh, processing. The skim milk was fed to hogs. That became, a, you know, another thing you could market. Uh, so alfalfa was this great beginning. And also then there was some grain that was irrigated uh, grain, uh, the livestock feed. Uh, some you know could be for dairy, some for the horses that they needed. Uh, beans were sometimes farmed. Uh, orchards and vineyards were planted. Uh, in, this, in the irrigation dream, uh, the, the promoter's dream, Orchards were always kind of the ultimate goal. You, you picture the, the beautiful orchards. And this is, however, permanent crops like that, they take more money to establish. Mm -hmm. They take longer before they bear. You get some cutting of alfalfa almost right away, but a, a fruit tree is going to take several years to mature to the point you're going to get a serious crop. So it took longer, but there were always, right from the beginning, there were orchards being planted. There were peaches and apricots, I think, were probably the most important of uh, the tree crops. Around Ceres, they tried figs. So Smyrna figs became a, a crop for a while, at least, uh, in the Ceres area. So all of this was, um, was important as, as you get a, a more diversified farm. And some of these farms were diversified. It may have started out with just alfalfa, Maybe then they get some, some of their own cows. And then maybe they plant a few acres of trees. So, so they have the mix of that permanent crop. and they, Those who diversified usually, you know, did very well on that. But the most dramatic success stories, the ones that, that made the headlines, really, were sweet potatoes and melons. Sweet potatoes grew well on the sandier soils in the district. So we're talking, you know, south of Turlock a lot, uh, Hillmar area, uh, and, and, and other parts of the, of the, uh, of the district. 
but sweet potatoes were good. Uh, melons were really good. I mean, melons took off uh, all kinds of melons, but, uh, but basically cantaloupes and watermelons were the big ones. And Turlock became something of a melon shipping center. And there are old photographs of the wagon loads of melons lined up at the railroad depot, you know, where they were assembled and sold. So it was a big deal. And, and beginning in 1911, Turlock held an annual melon festival, you know, which, I mean, eventually became more like a county fair. But it was, it was a critical crop, not because it was a lot of acres, because it was a lot of money. Oh, okay. The value per acre is so much higher on these. Irrigated land, irrigated crops, much more valuable than dry farmed. And then melons were much more valuable than, say, alfalfa or grain. Okay. Which you might grow on, on those crops. Okay, so we're celebrating the, the successes of these diversified crops. Um, we're seeing a lot more production in the area. But what challenges did TID still have to face? Well, the district itself had a good many challenges. Um, this was a, a tough time just to get the canals built. And remember, they were out of money virtually on a, a permanent basis. Well, they had to get their financial house in order first. Uh, remember, we still got the injunction suits holding up tax collection, which meant without taxes, you couldn't pay the interest on the bonds. So you couldn't have operating funds. It was, it was a hand-to-mouth sort of thing. So they began to unwind the injunction suits to, and then to push harder to get uh, people to pay their taxes. Some of those who had not paid their taxes, the district made them an offer of uh, very limited penalties you know, to get them to pay you know, on the, on the uh, threat that if you don't pay us now, and we, you know, unravel all this legal stuff, then you'll have to pay more penalties. So they did start collecting money. Again, they got the, uh, the tax collection finally on a, on a reasonable basis. And they settled with the bondholders. <clears throat> Remember, the bonds, bondholders haven't been paid because taxes haven't been able to be collected. Right. And these district bonds were not, had not been worth a lot. So they were able to refund the bonds. That is, the bondholders agreed to take the old bonds back and receive new ones from the district, you know, at a slightly lower interest rate and a longer term. So it was good for the bondholders. They got a settlement and they started getting paid regularly. The district got a little bit better financing deal. And so that settled, you know, gradually took some years, that settled the financial problem. But the district had to figure out how to operate the system. It's one thing to build canals, it's another to run the water through them. And remember, this is a cash-strapped district. The board of directors was very cautious about spending money. So the ditch tenders were operating really kind of just by guessing how much water they were running in the canals. Deliveries were therefore not uniform. Mm. There were complaints from the irrigators. And of course, the irrigators themselves probably came at it with the higher expectations of service than anybody could deliver, and certainly not the district in the state that it was in at the beginning. It had no office. 
this canal superintendent operated out of a harness room. Uh, the ditch tenders occasionally didn't get paid and stopped work, right? which took the water out of the canal system for a day or two at a time. Uh, so, you know, there were some difficult moments. Some, some growing pains. Some growing pains showed up. And of course, that there was this some agitation, you know, among, from some of the local people, hey, you guys need to do better. So there was a kind of, I'd call a low boil of, of turmoil going on for that first <clears throat> 10, 12 years or so where they're just getting everything started. Pioneering. Pioneering days were, were tough for the farmers and tough for the, for the district in that. And at the same time, you know, one of the things of better service is to improve the reliability and the capacity of the canal system. Um, and that was in a couple of different ways. First, you needed a few more canals. The original system of main canals and laterals that the district constructed didn't quite cover all the land that could be irrigated in the district. Most of it, not quite all of it. So there had to be additional laterals constructed. This was mainly in the southern part of the district. And uh, by 1910, they constructed what's called the Highline Canal, which takes off from the main canal upstream from Hickman, still just at the very edge of the, of the steeper foothills and runs around toward the... Uh, the southwestern corner of, mm-hmm. of TID out toward uh, below Hillmar. So, I mean, those kind of extensions of the canal system had to be run. And the main canal had to be improved. And the main canal is that section from LaGrange Dam down to Hickman, down, uh, down to what they call the division gates uh, at Hickman. So the difficulties there were the terrain. Uh, you had a lot of, of difficulties in getting the water across that rough country. So tunnels were there. Some of them had to be improved. The tunnel at the head of the canal, TID side of LaGrange Dam is a solid bluff. It has a canal, that w- a tunnel that was run through it to carry the canal. That had to be enlarged. Uh, they built where there were large gully uh, ravines that had to be crossed in many cases, they used flumes. These are really canals on trestles, if you will, big bridges that were built across the across these ravines. And these tall wooden flumes were really not that good. They, you know, wood decays. Sure. Yeah. So they barely got irrigation started. Uh, and one of the flumes collapsed. Yeah, there was word that it might have been dynamited. The board, the board offered a reward. No one ever claimed it because they probably just got rotten timbers and the thing fell down on its own accord. <laughs> <laughs> there was never any evidence of that, but, but there were suspicious minds. Um, so to solve these problems, first they rebuilt a lot of those flumes solider, better than they'd been in the 1890s when stuff was whatever you could put together fast. Sure. Uh, that was one improvement. Eventually, they did what were called hydraulic fills. That is, they, they basically filled the flume, filled that trestle with dirt. Just It became encased in a new mountain of its own with the canal, a concrete canal this time, running on top. So that gave the security 
in those areas. Other places where side hills, you know, were a problem, received concrete retaining walls. <clears throat> All of it was with larger capacities because as you get more people coming in, uh, you need to have more volume flowing through. Originally, they thought small, you know, oh, well, you know, we don't need that much water. Well, you did need water, you needed more of it. And so the more farmers there were, the more water you needed to run at any one time to get the water you know, across to all of them. So there were capacity improvements as well. It was a more or less continuous process of upgrading the main canal. And the, the, the canals that ran through the, um, through the plains also were upgraded. <clears throat> Originally, some of the called drop structures where the canal changes elevation. If you drive around, you see these with... Uh, where there's a little waterfall down there. Those were originally wooden. Again, they decayed fairly quickly, and they began to replace some of those with concrete structures. Okay. So even though the canals are dirt, you know, the, the actual drop itself is going to be more permanent. So there were improvements that continued, you know. Like you said, continuously. As the district could, and the district could afford them. Right. Well, you mentioned more people in the area, more irrigation. Did the district have enough water to maintain this? Well, in the spring, yes. The Tuolumne River runs heavy in the winter. It runs really heavy in the snowmelt season of the spring and then drops off you know, to a very low flow, almost nothing, in the summer into the fall before the rains begin. So that the same seasons that the wheat growers you know, had to manage, the district had to manage. So yes, there was plenty of water in the spring. That's where you needed bigger canals to move that water quickly to the farmers. But then as the flow dropped, fewer and fewer farmers would be able to irrigate at a time until it became uneconomical really to irrigate hardly anything. So the water usually ran out some point in the summer, <clears throat> whether it was in August, maybe in a wetter year, in July, often I'd say in July, uh, irrigation essentially is over for the year. Yeah. Alfalfa wouldn't die. It just wouldn't produce as much for the remainder of the year. And people were accustomed to that. But the district, to develop further, needed to be able to store water to get more irrigation in the summer, to get that summer irrigation was important. So more acreage irrigated, canals need to be better, and you need some storage. So they looked around for where to build reservoirs. And <clears throat> they had two options. One was to go to the mountains, build storage up in the Sierras. The other was to build storage along the canal itself. And they, the engineers looked at both. There were several survey parties uh, up in the high country. And we talk high country, we're talking some of it in the very high country uh, of Yosemite. Okay. Up in up among the, the peaks where there were natural lakes that could be expanded just by a, a simple dam that wouldn't take a lot to build, you know, and, and could store some water. But of course there were problems and it's a long ways away. You need permission. You need all kinds of, uh, there's issues of doing that. It was more practical, uh, probably cheaper, but certainly more practical and quicker to build along the canal. So in the foothills, uh, the canal would pass through valleys. And if you put little 
dams, small dams, in the low spots around those valleys, you could build a reservoir. And so that's what they decided to do. And it's what we now call Turlock Lake. Uh, it was originally called Davis Reservoir. It was Owens Reservoir. It had various names, but it became eventually became known as Turlock Lake. <clears throat> and that was completed in 1914, the beginning of 1914. And that's just a series of dams around a, a natural low spot where the canal passed through it. It held, holds a little less than 50,000 acre feet of water when it's full. So... It was filled for the first time in the spring of, of 1914 with the intention, of course, is you're going to get that extra irrigation in 1914. Unfortunately, things didn't work out quite as well as, as you'd hoped. So in June 1914, there was a, a major break right near the outlet gate where the water left the reservoir. There was a heavy masonry wall. It was one of the tallest of, in, the, in the system. And it, a part of it collapsed oh my. in the early morning hours. Water rushing through that break. Remember, the, it's full. So there's a big push of water coming down there. Of course, went into the canal, sloshing over the sides of the canal. It eventually wore a hole in one side of the canal and went down the hill toward Roberts Ferry. And at this point, you got a you're cutting a ravine. And the mm. ravine is working its way back toward the outlet gate, eroding the canal, destroying even more of it as the water emptied out for several days. So in the end, the district is left with a mess. It doesn't have the canal, even though <laughs> you can't run anything. So they quickly designed and, and built uh, an emergency canal around the busted part. Okay, so... This was done as fast as possible. Anybody with, with teams you know, could go and work up there. But it still took long enough you know, that by the time it was finished, the river was dropping for the summer. There was almost no water to be had. So mostly irrigation ended in June that year. And old timers remembered that um, 1914 was a bad year. Absolutely. Goodness. And that was, again, that was upon the first filling of Turlock Lake. Is that first, right? That was the very first filling. Oh, goodness. I mean, they, got the, they got their little, their, they could fix the canal and they rebuilt the outlet gate and the wall, the outlet, the new outlet gate. You know, the plans were reviewed in detail by the state engineer and, and approved. And that outlet, get, outlet gate stood forever. So, mm. I mean, it was finally get get it done but there was that problem it was a serious serious problem in 1914 absolutely goodness so what happened after 1914 did things improve that was a turning point 1914 as bad as it was and it was bad was really the end of the the pioneer period uh, after that things things got better the district became better managed the farmers were there was less problem uh, with the functioning of everything. Now, it's interesting that in at the beginning of 1914, before everything broke, uh, the district got a new chief engineer. And the chief engineer is really the general manager of an irrigation district. The new fellow was named Roy Meikle. 
Now, Meikle uh, had come to TID in 1912 uh, as part of the, during the controversy over San Francisco's Hetch Hetchy plans. This was the district needed more engineering work to refute some of the claims San Francisco was making. And that's work that Meikle did in 1912. Now, in 1913, he led a, a survey party eight men, about five months, supplied by pack mules, into the canyon above LaGrange, above La, up above LaGrange Dam, surveying for a new reservoir. So they, they were out there, like I say, for, for months, living out there, taking back taking all kinds of measurements, brought those back to Turlock, and in December 1913, the Turlock Irrigation District made the first filing for what became the Don Pedro Reservoir with a plan to impound almost 290,000 acre feet uh, behind a big new reservoir. Now, that was, that's important stuff. Meikl was there at that point. 10 years after the survey, in 1923, Don Pedro was finished. At that point, Meikl was chief engineer for the construction of the dam, as well as chief engineer for the Turlock Irrigation District. And TID, of course, entered the electric power business from the turbines at Don Pedro. And that is very close to getting us to where the district wound up today. Amazing. It's really incredible that a huge amount of effort and progress that in a relatively short amount of time completely transformed our region into a thriving agricultural area, providing food for our community and the world. But we know that's just the beginning, right? For those who are interested in diving deeper or continuing your education of TID history, we have a limited number of Land, Water, and Power, the History of Turlock Irrigation District books available, and we'll include contact information in our show notes if you would be interested in securing a copy for yourself. Dr. Patterson, thank you for helping us showcase this early part of TID's 135-year history. Next year marks our 100th year of providing electricity, and we know there is much more of TID's history to share. We hope that you will join us for a future podcast episode so that we can continue our discussion. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the TID Water and Power Podcast. You can find TID on Facebook at facebook.com slash TurlockID, on Instagram and Twitter at TurlockID, and on LinkedIn as the Turlock Irrigation District. I'm your host, Constance Anderson. We'll see you again next time.